All right, so that just about closes it up for Rumbletone Radio, a go-go today. Um, Frank will be back next week, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. My name is Robin, and let's see. i got to tell you what's coming up. After me, we've got Arts Report with Tracy, and then Audio Text at 6 o'clock with uh, Julian Eric. Uh, I think Sam Squanch's Hideaway is playing today with Anita B at 6.30. And then Folk Oasis with Val Cormier at 8. 10 p.m., Sex and Van City with Caroline M. And at 11, Hans Kloss's Misery Hour, hosted by Marion. And that's it for me. That's it for the day. Um, here is Arts Report. Hello out there. I hope you're all enjoying this beautiful, sunshiny weather we've been having. And I hope you're wearing a hat and sunscreen while you're listening. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, July 29th, 2009. As usual, I have a jam-packed show for you today, but much of today's show is going to come from a dialogue that I recorded a few weeks ago at the Dancing on the Edge Festival. I also have a wonderful theater review from my theater critic Elizabeth Kirkland that will run at the end of the show, but why don't we get right to the special content for today. I must mention again that today's show is being brought to you by the Olio Festival. Olio is a non-for-profit Vancouver-based cultural expose with music, comedy, design, art and film from across Canada and beyond. The four-day festival begins on August 13th with every night based in a different neighborhood. And if you visit www.oliofestival.com for the festival lineup and answers to all the questions, you can also pick up some passes which are now available. On July 16, 2009, an engaging afternoon of dialogue on dance happened at Vancouver's Alibi Room. The event was called Eat Dance, discussing topics of ego, art and territory and its impact on the creative and dissemination process. The conversation was moderated by Max Wyman and included three keynote speakers who are leaders in Vancouver's arts and cultural community. Bill Richardson is a writer and CBC broadcaster. Brenda Ledley has been involved in the theatre for over 30 years and is currently the artistic director of the Presentation House Theatre. Erwin Ustindi is the executive director of W2, Canada's first cross-media centre, which will be opening at the Woodward's redevelopment in late 2009. The collective's prowess and extensive mixture of artistic experience and background was aimed to inspire a whole new level of discourse within the dance community. Eat Dance was organized by the Vancouver Dance Managers and by the 2009 Dancing on the Edge Festival. This dialogue will air in two parts on the Arts Report, the first part occurring today and the next part occurring on August 5th, 2009. And now, without further ado, here's the Firehall Arts Center's Donna Spencer to introduce Eat Dance, Ego, Art and Territory. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm going to ask for your kind attention. Uh, my name is Donna Spencer, and I'm the producer of the Dancing on the Edge Festival, and I'm delighted to be a part of this first dialogue, which I hope will lead to many other dialogues. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank the Alibi Room for allowing us to be here today, and also I would also like to recognize that we are on Coast Salish uh, territory and uh, thank them for allowing us to be here today as well. Um, I wanted to give you some context about how this event came together and then I will introduce Max Wyman, who many of you know, uh, uh, who will take it away. Uh, this was a little before my time in this discussion, but I, the dance managers who are involved in uh, managing dance companies and in doing presentation, a lot of them had been meeting for some time and having conversations about various things uh, and I think determined that they would like to go forward with some kind of congress or co some kind of series of dialogues about the arts, about dance, um, just ways to sort of grow 
grow their understanding, but also to stimulate dialogue amongst themselves and amongst uh, others that are practicing art in the community. So I think the first meeting I went to about this was in April, and there was much discussion about whether we should do a Congress, what did a Congress, what would a Congress be, uh, did we have any money to do a Congress, and it was determined, all those things, that no, we didn't have enough money to do a Congress, but we certainly could start a series of conversations. So this is the beginning of conversations, dialogues. Uh, after that meeting in April, there was a group of people struck to just go out and brainstorm about what a conversation or what a dialogue would be. Thank you, trains. Uh, <laughs> um, so they'll be up, the trains may upstage us a bit, but it'll keep the air flowing. Um, and I think as a result of that brainstorming session, what, I, what we heard from everybody that was at that table was that people did not want to talk about marketing. They did not want to talk about advocacy. They did not want to talk about some of the practical some of the more practical things because we do get lots of opportunities to talk about those things, but we don't often talk about the arts, the art th itself, or the, crea the creative process. Um, and this seemed to be something that everybody was really excited about. So we decided, uh, I, I don't know, it was at a meeting at Ann Coombs that the idea came about to talk about um, the theme of today's lecture, which is, or lecture, pardon me, dialogue, which is ego art and territory because all of those things impact creation and all of those things impact on dis dissemination as well. Uh, the next step was to determine who our speakers would be and we decided that we really did want to go outside of the dance community and find out what was going on in other areas um, of the ar of arts artistic practice. So hence uh, a very diverse panel. All of them I believe like dance, they do support dance, but they don't proclaim to be experts in the dance community. So they're not speaking from a dance community perspective. Um, and we're going to um, continue on and then at the end of the day, wrap up. And if people want to have some drinks, uh, that's cool too. Um, we also hope that you'll see more dance performances that are going on during Dancing on the Edge. So without further ado, I'm going to turn you over to Max Wyman. Thank you again on behalf of the Dance Managers Group for coming out to the dance managers, who, companies who donated funds, and to those who were on the core organizing team. Uh, enjoy your afternoon, and uh, off we go. Max Wyman, who for many of you needs no um, introduction, but Max has been a longtime supporter of dance. He's written about it, he's critiqued it, uh, he's also been an advocate for the arts, uh, and in the, his past immediate role, which he doesn't talk about too much anymore, he was the mayor of Lions Bay, and he advocated for arts at the greater Vancouver level. So, Max, over to you. Thanks, Donna. I, I was really pleased to hear Donna say that this is not about dance, because it's not. Um, there's been a feeling in, within the arts community generally in Vancouver, I think for a long time, that we need to elevate the debate we need to get people thinking a little more deeply about what they do and, and why they do it. And this is one of the, uh, the first moves we're seeing toward that deepened debate about uh, why art and what for and, and, uh, and how. Uh, I look around this room and we're talking about ego, art and territory and my goodness, uh, the room's full of it. Um, as Donna said, I was a critic for a long, long time. I wrote about the arts and I can, uh, I've got plenty of ego, art, and territory of my own. Uh, in fact, uh, from both sides of the fence, uh, I was a writer, I am a writer, and um, talking about ego, the first book I ever wrote about dance got 32 reviews um, around North America, which was phenomenal at that time. And uh, I remember one of them, and that was the negative one, the one which didn't like the book. The rest of them, it didn't matter. But there's ego right there, um, rearing its ugly little head. Uh, we'll talk more about that as we go along. Um, there was a suggestion years ago that critics were in a position of, of almost unassailable power because they spoke, they made pronouncements on someone's baby and then moved on. And whatever was said, hurtful or not, was, uh, could not be responded to in any... In any um, in the same forum. These days, of course, with, uh, with social media, 
um, is very different. You probably know the story that happened just recently of Alice Hoffman, the, uh, the New York writer, who uh, published a book and it was savaged by a, a reviewer in the Boston Globe. So Alice Hoffman took to Twitter and started sending out uh, little uh, knocking responses to the review, ending with posting the critic's telephone number on Twitter and asking her readers to get in touch with the critic personally. So that kind of... In fact, she posted the wrong number, um, which suggests that we should be all be more attentive to uh, proofreading on, on Twitter. Uh, 140 characters isn't really that difficult to check, I wouldn't have thought. Um, but the things are changing. The shoes are now on the other foot very much so, and critics are losing their, their um, image of, of um, unassailable... Uh, superiority, and that's a good thing. We're here to talk about ego, and we're here to talk about territory, and they are very much linked by that word in the middle, um, art. We're not talking about ego, I don't think, in the... I think we need to get that term straight. We're not going to talk about it in terms of uh, the Freudian interpretation. The ego is really the the controlling element of the psyche. Um, The id is the... um, the uh, innovative, the exploratory, the unrestrained area of the psyche, according to Freud, and the superego, which is what I like to think of as a critic, is um, is the one that uh, puts everything in shape. is the, is the moralizing, uh, formalizing element of the psyche. We're not talking about those elements so much as the ego as a manifestation of the creative urge. And what we want to address is questions like: um, Can we create? Without the ego, what role does the, does the ego play in, in creativity? Um, what does it do to the preparation of the work? What does it do to the perception of the work? Uh, how do you relate to what you've made? Uh, how does your ego affect that? Uh, I, I like us all to think about all those things. And also the question of territory. Territory is a, a, an enormous, enormous area to, to discuss in relation to, to art making. Um, it can be physical territory. It can be territory that we um, inhabit in terms of the work we make. It can be a territory that is perhaps um, owned by other people. The whole question of, of cultural appropriation is tied into this question of territory. And I think we'll get into all of this. Right now, I'm going to pass this on to the panel and get us going with Bill Richardson. Um, you all know Bill. He's a very popular, very famous radio host. He's also a quite brilliant um, writer of, of comic and other work. He's won many awards for his writing and for his broadcasting. Um, he's a great ornament to our community. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, look. Um, and uh, Bill has, um, he's, he's been on both sides of the fence, like me a bit. He's spent a lot of time as a kind of interlocutor with, with, um, with genius, with, with creative genius. And, and I'm sure he uh, has a lot of things, to, a lot of perceptions to bring us about the interplay of the ego and the interplay of territory. And I'll hand, you over, hand this over now to Bill. Thanks, Max. Can I have the stand as well, do you think? Do you mind if I... Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> The train paused outside momentarily, and the, the sign that was visible to my eye on the car said, Inedible Beef Tallow. <laughs> and there was about it the whiff of prophecy. <laughs> um, so... Um, it's it's a, a great pleasure to be here, and, and, and thanks very much, uh, Donna and Anne, for the invitation. I I, uh, I should say that I'm I'm always a little suspicious of um, acronyms, you know, EAT, because sometimes it seems like it's just a kind of convenience of shoehorning that dictates them. You know, the kinds of things like. Um, Society for the Preservation of Ethnographic Modalities, sperm, women against castrati, cavelling and yodeling, wacky, Porcelain Repair Institute of Canton, Kentucky, prick, and so on and so forth. So, um, so were these three keystones this afternoon, ego, art, and territory, uh, were they just really put together because it conveniently made eat? Um, we must acknowledge the possibility. We could be here merely in the service of cuteness and speaking entirely for myself. It wouldn't be the first time. Um, 
anyway, um, it's uh, I- in fact they they are quite interesting areas to address. And and uh, as, as as Donna had said, uh, I, I certainly do not speak from the perspective of the dance community, not at all, not at all, but, but, but maybe by way of um, establishing my, my bona fides for being here this afternoon, I, I should talk a little bit about my very short-lived career as a dancer, which lasted exactly nine months. Um, I was born on August the 11th, 1955, brief pause to do the math, and um, assuming a full and exact nine-month term, that would mean that I was conceived on Remembrance Day of the year prior, and I came into the world and my career as a dancer ended um, at 11 a.m., which suggests what my parents were doing on Remembrance Day rather than observing a moment of silence, although, in fact, they were the children of Victorians, so silence might well have reigned, you know, (laughs) Jesus, Jesus, it was reserved pretty much for the church. Um, Like most women of her generation, or like many women of her generation, my mother smoked and drank through all three of her pregnancies. Um, So, um, first of all, I'm glad of this because these are... Um, factors to which I have a terrible draw in my own life. And, and I like to think of that, that, that time of my gestation as time spent in a kind of amniotic nightclub, in a way, you know, as a freewheeling and unconstrained, smoke and booze everywhere. Um, and I imagine myself kind of bumping and jiving, grooving to the beat of her heart, to her digestive rumbles, uh, you know, flexible, rhythmic, a kind of placenta-encased gymnast. Now, uh, about my birth, mercifully, I know nothing, because if I did, I would be telling you for sure, and then the forceps were brought to bear. But this was Winnipeg, and this was mid-century, and women pretty much took the advice of their male doctors and pretty much lay back and did exactly what they were told. What I do know is that as soon as I sucked oxygen, it was game over for me as a dancer. I stiffened in the air. I went rigid every time I was touched. I was a stiff baby, as my mother delighted in telling me. An Alexander teacher I once consulted years and years ago, Richard Ireton, the late Richard Ireton, told me that I had less body awareness than anyone he had ever met. And certainly I have no sense of the space around me either. I I just don't see the air as a plane ripe for bisecting. I can't be relied upon to find my way back from a restaurant restroom to my seat in the restaurant. No sense of direction at all. What was curious about this, or what is curious about this to me, and this sort of bringing this around to questions of ego, is that some of my earliest memories are of terpsichoric ambition. I wanted desperately to dance. Not just to prance around the room in mummy's high heels, but to dance in a formal kind of way. To dance in a way that would garner recognition. I wanted to dance like the dancers I saw on television, like on the Ed Sullivan show, or on the Juliet show, or on Hollywood Palace, or even on Don Messer's Jubilee, and that was entirely square dancing. I wanted to tap dance more than anything. I wanted to do ballet. I wanted to express myself. I wanted to open the vent of my ego, in other words, by doing that thing by moving my body through space to music. That it didn't happen is attributable, probably, to the bald fact that I wasn't equipped to make this longing a reality. In other words, I didn't have what one mostly needs for this kind of thing, and that is the gift. I didn't have the talent. And yet, that thing, the ability to dance, is so markedly not in me. I am such a bad dancer, so bad a dancer, that anyone seeing me dance would think that I had actually worked on it, that I think that something else might be at play here, in part, if not in entirety. Now, yesterday, just uh, across the street from where I live in Strathcona, just over there, not far from here, I crossed paths with little Ella. Uh, she's um, the, the, uh, the sweet girl who lives across the street, and she was out walking with her father, Drew. She is probably the prettiest little girl you would ever hope to meet, classically Gerber baby beautiful. She's two years old, and she was wearing these pretty little patterns, uh, a pretty little pattern sundress, and, and, and new shoes. They were open-toed sandals with daisies on them. And they squeaked when she walked. The squeak was built into the shoes. And when her shoes were admired, as everyone around her was doing, she, she always collects quite a crowd, Ella does, she chuckled her little baby laugh. She was a late walker, and she doesn't show any signs of being in a hurry to talk, but there's no doubting her intelligence. You can see it radiating off her. She chuckled her baby laugh, and she put her finger to her mouth, and she, in a kind of coquettish gesture, and then she hiked up her skirt ever so slightly, like Marilyn Monroe in the seven-year itch minus the subway grate. And it was 
an ultra-femme kind of gesture, and I was amazed, as I have often been, at how early that kind of imprinting takes place. She has very enlightened parents. Her mother is a physician, her father is off to the London School of Economics in the fall, and I can't imagine they've done anything deliberate to make her girly. She simply is, and I don't doubt that at some pre-articulate level, little Ella understands something about this. And on this I pass no judgment. I mention it only because, demonstrably, our sense of gender and how we make a public demonstration of that gender is the stuff of early development. Now, I'm quite sure that way back then in Winnipeg in the late 50s and the early 60s, I was made to understand in ways both implicit and explicit that dancing was not boy-appropriate. I could never substantiate this. I could never offer anything that looks like proof. But I'm sure of it, just as I'm sure that I understood long, long before I could ever put a word to it, long before I ever understood that there might be a word put to it, that I was gay, and that that was something that had to be hidden at all costs. There was nothing to be gained from revelation. I remember sitting on the couch one day in our living room. A couch wasn't the word. It was a Chesterfield. We wouldn't have said couch. And my mother's friend, Stella, passed through. I had very, very blonde hair in those days. Well, I had hair, and I had blonde hair. And the sun was angled in, in such a way that it must have made a kind of nimbus around my head. Stella, passing by, ran her hand over my head, and she said to my mother, Oh, Peggy, he should have been a girl. Now, this was one of those marking moments, evidence that I had been found out, that... <laughs> deeper, more deliberate concealment was required. And among the things that would have to be stricken from the list of possibilities, among the things that might betray the truth, was dancing, of course. So you bunch it up, you put it in a dark room, give it no light, give it no water, let it wither and die. Now, this is theoretical. Was there ever anything there? I have no idea, and I'll never know if there was, because if there was, it's long ago atrophied past the point of anything like revival. But it has been my experience, and again, this is talking about ego, it has been my experience that the longing to do something rarely lives independently of the ability, however limited that gift might be. Few people desperately hamper to do something specific, play the violin, say, or work through difficult theorems in total abstraction from the possibility of that achievement. Whether or not that gift, whatever its size, is ever exploited depends on many factors, and I would say that ego is one of the chief determinants. Now, some little gay boys, many of whom had much more to contend with than I, did become dancers. They didn't let that other stuff get in the way. But why? Well, because they were differently constituted, probably, and much more talented, and simply much more determined to honor the ego, which is a stupidly freighted word, as Max suggested earlier on, and which I use simply to mean the self, uh, which I understand to be the expression of, of, of who we are vis-a-vis the world. It's the self is our imaginations at play in the environment. The ego is the self, or maybe more accurately, the part of our psyches that drives the need to let the self be known, to make it known. Without ego, no one would dance or make dance. Without ego, the person who left a tag the other night on my fence, fox hunt it says, would simply have left the felt marker at home. Without ego, my partner, who's an architect, would never design houses or public spaces, even though they go unsigned, even though someone who was curious to know the facts of authorship would really have to work to find them out. My own ego, my own sense of self and self-expression, eventually found a way to escape through the various fissures and strata, and it did that mostly through writing or sometimes, or more broadly, through uh, constructing narrative through, through, through words, sometimes expressed graphically on the page and sometimes orally uh, through the various radio programs that I've hosted or produced over the years. Now, how one comes to art, if art is going to come, if, if one is going to come to art, is perhaps dependent on how the ego, the sense of self, develops, how tenacious its roots, at what age. Writing rarely comes early. Occasionally it does, but not in any way that's going to skew the average. Mine wasn't uh, sufficiently forceful or prodigious ego as to allow the possibility of dance. But by the time it did take hold, by the time some expression had to come out, I could turn that absence, the absence of the strong ego, into part of a story and incorporate it into my emerging sense of self. And by way of example, my mother worked in insurance. She was an insurance agent. And I remember by the time uh, I was starting to think of myself as a writer, and I was 14 or 15 years old, she came home one day from work, and she told the story about how two dancers from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, Terry Thomas and Craig Sterling, anybody know them? 
Okay, Terry Thomas and Craig Sterling, who were at the time a couple. I think that Craig Sterling later took up with Louise Naughton, um, and uh, who now lives in Australia. In any case, um, they uh, they had come into her insurance office to apply for a policy, and this delighted her to no end because it was a gay story to tell. She didn't tell us because she knew or intuited that I was gay. She did it because she could make fun of gay people, which at, in that time and in that place was not an uncommon thing. It was a joke. It was a gay joke she could tell. Two men, oh my God, can you imagine, came into the office, a couple, a self-identified couple, and um, I, I remember vividly her telling me this and sort of filing it away for future information, that it was, it was, it, it was evidence of something that I couldn't quite articulate at the time, I can't quite articulate now, but it was already the element of a story. I recognized it as the element of a story. I knew that it was becoming part of my own being. That was what the ego was doing by then. Um, the, the irony of this, in a way, is that they, those two gentlemen were um, uh, acquainted with the woman who is now my stepsister, Kathy Taylor. My father married Kathy Taylor's mother uh, not long after the death of my mother. Anyway, um, it's ironic how these things happen sometimes in life. And it's all part of the narrative, all part of the inedible beef tallow of life. So um, working with words... And when the radio is in play, music and sound are brought into the mix, is a kind of dancing, I think. It's work that's about balance, it's about measuring, it's about carving up space, it's about storytelling. There are differences, of course. All the balancing and measuring and carving is done while sedentary and solitary, and more often than not, with really terrible posture. Dancers have their feet, writers have their spines. Like dancing, like any other art making, it has its joys and it has its frustrations. It's days when it's magically easy, though more often than not, it's like using your brain to force blood from your ears. Mostly, it's a pleasure and a privilege even uh, to, to be in a place and to be accorded the chance to write, even if that chance is entirely self-made and self-directed. And every so often, very rarely, one is rewarded with a word of praise or understanding, and now and again there's a check, and that counts for something, of course. I'm amazed always when people say they can't write. Maybe... Uh, and, and, and because it just seems so, it just seems so available. Maybe you're amazed too when you hear that people can't dance. But write, writing is just—it's there. It belongs to all of us. And when people say they can't write, I think I understand them mostly as saying they. They choose not to write. They don't want to, and I think that's fine. I sometimes write for children, and that puts one in the path of being seen as an expert in literacy for some weird reason. I've observed this time and again. And that means you get questions, well-intentioned questions, always from teachers and parents who want to know how they can get their children to want to write. And I never know what to say. I'd be as well equipped to tell them how to get them to like mangoes. I have no idea, and I don't believe that it's necessarily that important. I've often been accused, when I talk about writing, uh, of being self-deprecating, which I hope I'm not. It's a terrible, passive-aggressive ploy, a diaphanous bid for approval. And I don't think it's self-deprecatory, merely honest to say that in a few weeks I'll be turning 54, and to date I have never written anything to which one would assign the word major or that would qualify as necessary reading. I think it unlikely that I ever will. It's the furthest thing from my mind. When I meet people who ask what I do and when I tell them I'm a writer... There's typically an awkward silence while they flip through the Rolodex of their minds, searching, searching. But they would need to be very thorough record keepers to find me there. I'm sorry, they say. I don't think I've... And this makes me smile because it's a dear demonstration of a, a kind of human impulse. that We think we should know the names of people who perform or otherwise make a living trying to curry public favor. I fend off the accusations of self-deprecation when I lay claim to my territory. I don't aspire to the vast country estate. I'm happy with the tiny cottage that's easy to manage. Mine is a modest talent that expresses itself modestly. But that's not to say that it's not driven by a, a very healthy ego. It is. Most talents are modest. That's simply the truth of the world. Very, very few books, for instance, are widely remembered or celebrated, and rather few of those that are remembered or celebrated are ever read. I claim my little, per, my, my little piece of turf among those whose talents are modest, which is not to say that I think that what I write, which is light, is necessarily worthless. Well, a large percentage of it certainly is, but not all. Every now and then, every now and then, and this is what you live for, this is what you write for, you get it right. And you can be right while being light. 
Cold Comfort Farm, I Capture the Castle, Lucky Jim, I would far rather lay claim to any of those books than to say War and Peace or The Magic Mountain or Oryx and Crake, all worthy, heavy books. And I'm not without ambition. I see at this stage in my life not just the room for improvement, not just room for improvement, also room for advancement. With writing, you can get better as you get older, which is one of the reasons I'm just as glad things worked out as they did. For me, writing, all art making, is about territory. It's about finding home, which I think is the heaviest word in the English language. Home is the place you belong. It's your shelter. It's your hope for the future. It's your hope for continuance. Your home needs to suit you, not your colleagues or your friends, not your critics, not the people who would prey on what we think of as the ego. There are other territories, as you look around, that you will think are vaster, that are more richly endowed, that are sexier. It doesn't matter. One settles on one's own. And our responsibility, whatever our art, is to get to know it. It doesn't mean you're stuck when you stay there. As time goes by, when it seems possible and appropriate to expand your holdings, well, try it out. See where it goes. But remember that there is a place where gravity is strongest. So you mark your territory. You defend it when necessary, mostly against the army of your own pernicious doubt. But we can't forget that the other responsibility that comes with the owning of territory is hospitality. You can say, this is mine, but you have to say, you can find something here too. You can come in, you can sit down, you can eat. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Um, Quite... Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I want to ask you if you, in your emerging sense of self, whether you think that the, the power of the ego might actually diminish over time and you might lose your sense of being involved with that territory, or do you imagine you will always be there? Well, I, I'm sure the answer is going to be different for everybody, and it's probably going to be different in every individual case depending on you know, what you had for dinner or the phases of the moon or whatever it is that dictates these things. Um, I, I, um, for, for, for me, it, uh, this, this all has to do with, 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 with aging. I'm a little obsessed by aging, which is simply what happens when you fail to die. Um, <laughs> and um, and, and one of the joys of it for me, I guess, I guess is the, the way that the self emerges in ways that are, are on the one hand, the ego emerges in ways that are on the one hand, uh, it, 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 one thinks of oneself as, not, not oneself, but the work you're doing as more important on the one hand and, and, and more dispensable on the other. Because the reality is, you have to take into account that the reality is that um, you, you get old, your friends age, you see people die around you. I mean, look at all the people we've lost this year, for instance. I think of this uh, a, a lot. And, and time does the work afterwards. Time sorts out what's going to be remembered, what's going to last, what's going to be of importance. The, the ego becomes less important because you have to understand that, you, in, in a way, you can step back from it. You, you do what you can, you do the best you can, you put it out there... And then something else makes a decision for you, whether it's the time, the mood, the public mind, public opinion, the economy, all those things have a role to bear. So on the one hand, you can work with the certainty that it doesn't matter. On on the other hand, you have to work with certainty that it matters absolutely because it's all you've got. It's all that you can put out there. It's all that you may or may not be remembered by. It's like Make, making friends in a way, you know, how you treat the work, how you honor the work, in some ways dictates how you'll be remembered for as long as you will be remembered. Um, so, in, in a way, it's nothing, and in a way, it's everything. Is that Zen enough? 
And that, of course, plays into the whole notion of how people regard their work as their babies because they are the perpetuation of themselves. And so that any um, response from other individuals has to be filtered through your own ego to, to, to be acceptable. Bill, thank you. Uh, I'm going to open this up to the audience after the three speakers have spoken, and then we can have a, a general um, discussion. But I'll move through the, the panel first, and, and Brenda is next. Um, Brenda has been around the theatre scene for a long, long time. Um, she's currently director of Presentation House in North Vancouver. Um, she's won Jesse Richardson Award. She ran Tamanus for a while. Um, she's a very much a part of the the creative scene in the city. And uh, I'm delighted that she's here because we, need, we wanted to bring this, to broaden, broaden this um, debate to bring in people who are not dance people. And Brenda, you're not involved with dance, but you know a lot of dance people. You've been around dance a long time, but you're also a theatre person. And what intrigued me when we were putting this together was the fact that you said you would probably not have too much good to say about ego and creativity. Over to you. Thank you, Max. Yeah, it's not that I don't have anything good to say about creativity. It, probably more that I have not too many good things to say about ego, even though I uh, accept and understand that it is the, the basis of uh, who we all are. Um, I wanted to, uh, to start today um, and, and tell you a story, because when I was researching this, I didn't sort of... Uh, look at myself as, you know, my impulse to dance in any way, as eloquently and as poetically as Bill did. I thought about it in terms of these concepts and what they've meant to me in my career. And I also just want to start out by saying that um, it's been a long time since I've created art myself. I started out that way, and I developed all kinds of artist statements and philosophies and ideas about art when I was creating it. But for the past... 15 years, I would say I've been more involved as a producer and a creator, uh, inventing festivals and creating programming and, uh, and directing, um, which sometimes is called an art form and sometimes is called a skill. So I just want to put that out there to begin with. Um, I, I kept, when I was researching this, I kept coming across the same story, so I wanted to share it with you because I think it, it really resonates for me what, uh, what ego is. It's the story of two wolves. An elderly Cherokee Native American was teaching his grandchildren about life. He said to them, A fight is going on inside me. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One wolf is evil. He is fear, anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, competition, superiority, and ego. The other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, Sharing, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, friendship, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. He said, this same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandchildren thought about it for a minute and then one child asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. And so I think that is a really good story about uh, ego and the place that it has in my life um, because I agree with the uh, grandfather, but at the same time in, in looking deep, more deeply into what ego is and, and what it represents, I realize that it is absolutely necessary to all of our lives and um, forms the basis of who we are. And I want to go back for a minute just to talk about the word ego because one of the things I discovered that I never knew was that ego is actually Latin for the word I, which I think also says a lot. Um, I had a very, really interesting experience when I was about 20 years old. Uh, I was at the University of Alberta and I was taking a psychology course and uh, we, as part of our uh, getting marks for the course, we had to go on a five-day retreat. We had these crazy professors who were into humanistic psychology. 
And so they took us on this retreat. There were about 50 of us. We all went and lived in this big barn. And um, they showed us how to, you know, meditate. They showed us how to do, uh, what's that therapy where gestalt therapy. They, they showed us all of these techniques. But probably the one that had the greatest impact on me was that one day when we woke up, they said to us, okay, for the rest of this day, you cannot use the word I. You must not speak the word. And that was an incredibly eye-opening experience because what I discovered at 20 years old was that a lot of my sentences started with I and that most of the time when I opened my mouth, I was talking about myself. And what I uh, came to realize over the course of that day and and the rest of that retreat was that when I stopped talking about myself and using that word I suddenly there was something that started to happen. There started to, I started to feel like my heart had gotten bigger and that somehow I was more connected to the people who were at that retreat. And it was a very curious thing because I think that was my very first experience like that where I felt like I had expanded outside of I and had gone beyond I and to some point that maybe you want to call egolessness or... You know, maybe it was the beginning of my journey towards enlightenment, <laughs> long, long journey that it is. Um, but it, was, it very much had a very profound effect on me, and I'll never forget that story. Um, <clears throat> so ego. I, when I approached this topic, I looked at, okay, the three words, ego, art, and territory, and I kept trying to find some resonance between those words. And I, so I started, okay, ego, ego is self. It, it means uh, individuality. It forms the basis of our perspective, and it's the basis upon which we form judgments about other people and about situations. And ego is also how we see ourselves as distinct and separate. And this goes back to what Bill was talking about, because when we're born, I don't think that we have that sense of separation. I think that we feel uh, wholeness, uh, that we are part of something, as we were inside of our mother's wombs. And it's only as we grow older and mature that we become identified with our bodies and our personalities and our families and all the thoughts and beliefs that make up our experiences of our life. So ego is about the self. It's about us. And I think it's about the part of us that needs recognition. Uh, It's the part of us that needs reassurance that we actually exist. Ego, or the idea of self, comforts us And helps us feel that we are not alone. It makes us feel like we're in control of our lives. Ego also helps uh, to determine and define our personalities. I would argue, however, that this part of the ego is only one part of our personality. The part that gives us reason to fear or loathe or isolate ourselves or feel insecure. The part of our personality that is ego believes that there is never enough. So we must hold on and state claim to what we have to prove that we exist. It's like a cocoon that we build around ourselves to protect us. I think it's small. I think it's judgment-based. And I think it holds us back from truths about ourselves and from each other. It separates us and it defines us in ways that isolate us and make us feel even more alone. It is the voice inside of our head that is guided by fear and by our need to know that we exist. But when you really think about it, there is another part of our personality that is not ego. That's the part of us that is constantly shifting and changing. Our personality or my personality changes depending on who I'm with, where I am, what I want. Personality for me is like truth in that it changes according to the situation we're in and what is demanded at any given time. I think that maybe the relationship between ego and personality is based in an attempt by ego to control personality, to keep it from changing. Perhaps ego is the result of clinging to what we were yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago. I would say that ego is the culmination of our remembered past, and it doesn't take the future into account. I think that the ego is the past, it is the known, and it is the conscious mind. What the ego is not, I believe, is the unconscious or the unknown. 
Because the ego seeks recognition, it seeks to name the things that we are and will become. I mean, how many of us, when we were little, knew what we wanted to be when we grew up? I wanted to be married to a very wealthy man, for example. That didn't come to fruition. In fact, the guy I live with now doesn't work. I think ego doesn't feel comfortable with the unknown. In fact, I would argue that ego equals stasis, and that, in fact, ego does not change. I would say that ego is the part of us that clings to what we know and does not look forward to any kinds of change. And in Buddhist philosophy, it is related to the fear of death. There's a wonderful Buddhist teacher who wrote a book called The Myth of Freedom. His name is, and I hope I'm saying it right, Chagyam Trungpa. He was also a guy who drank a lot of vodka, apparently, and slept with all of his students, but that's not why we're here today. (laughs) Um, He says that how we use our projections of self are his credentials to prove our existence. Driven by this uncertainty of existence, we seek to prove it by finding a reference point outside of ourselves and something to feel separate from. To understand the process of confirming the solidity of I and other is the development of ego. The Buddhists taught that our egos, personalities, and sense of self as something distinctive and permanent enclosed within our bodies are the illusory effects of ignorance, sensation, perception, thoughts, and consciousness. And that's a whole other discussion, and I'm not going to go any further into that, but I think it's very interesting um, how closely tied the idea of ego and egolessness is to uh, Buddhism. So I want to talk about a little bit about art now that I've uh, drummed ego to death. Um, for me, art is, is about expression. It's the expression of ideas, of colors, of movement, stories, music, humanity, beauty, and it's All of these things, I believe, are animated by a sense of rhythm, which inherently is change itself. If if, if art had no sense of rhythm, um, how could it possibly capture our imaginations and our attention and uh, reveal our compassion? Art is also an expression of self, and if it's really good art, it's an expression of shared humanity or inhumanity. Art can remind us of what's ordinary or extraordinary if it speaks directly about the potential of our life. It enriches our lives through recognition and through understanding, and both of those are acts of sharing ourselves. So you can see how it gets tricky because we need that ego, we need that sense of self in order to evolve past it. So can we create art without ego? because we all have them as much as we try to avoid them or try to rise above them. I know that um, I uh, tried many, for many years to overcome that sense of what I called ego I, through a spiritual practice. I was trying to make sense out of life, trying to f- find more meaning to what I was doing and to the creation of my art. I was trying to reach beyond what I knew. And I think that that is the the heart for me of what the discussion is about, is that if ego is something that we know and art is something that we don't know and we're reaching towards the unknown, then how do those two fit together? I think one is simply a springboard for another. Because when we talk about what inspires us to create art, isn't it the value of the unknown instead of the known? I think of myself and as other artists as explorers of that unknown, And I would actually argue that the most productive creative impulses come from the unknown and that the unknown is the basis of all creativity. The known is only a springboard, the ego. So how do we create art that isn't ego-driven? How do we enter the unknown? Personally, I've discovered that entering the unknown is simple as being present. By allowing ourselves to be informed by our present impulses instead of our past. By allowing ourselves to not know and to discover the the truth of each moment. When I'm working um, on a play and I'm directing a group of actors, or working in theater in that context and it's a creative moment, what I've always found is that if I can get rid of my own ego and my own need to 
show everybody how much I know and understand something, if I can get past that and just listen to what the people in the room are saying, truly listen, not listen while thinking about what I'm going to say, I find that that is the very source of creativity because ideas come through listening and through being present and through waiting and listening. And it's so simple and yet it seems so difficult to achieve sometimes because our minds are always worrying at 10 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour, depending on your mind. So I think that there's a value in listening and there's a value then in being able to hear and sense and feel those creative impulses and that that is also very scary. And so because it is so scary, because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how that piece of work is going to be completed. Robert Lepage, you know, when he's working on a piece of theater, many times he doesn't know what the ending of the piece is going to be until maybe after the play has opened. He's always constantly searching and reaching, and I'm sure many of you choreographers and dancers are doing the same thing. So my approach to art basically is the same approach I take to my life. I try to lead my life in a way that is where where I'm present, And when I think about territory, I think territory is an expression of where we are. And so I think for me, the territory that fits here in this context is the territory of the present. Um, The thing, my my son was over last night for, for dinner and I was telling him about this. And I said to him, you know, what do you think of these ideas? And he said, um, well... The first one he, he grabbed onto was territory. He said, that's, that's about ownership. And I said, well, what does, that, what does that mean to you? And he said, uh, he says, Mom, it just means like, you know, my friends, you know, he's, he's 30. When we really, you know, when we've really done something, it's like we, we own it, man. We own that thing. He's, and I said, well, so how does that relate to um, art? And he said, and ego. And he said, well... You can say that you own it because, you know, you had your moment in the sun, but as soon as that happens, you have to kind of let it go and go on to finding out what the next thing is. Because, you know, two years down the road, if you're still sitting there saying, you know, I invented that two years ago, and I, it's mine, I own it. It's like, it's kind of sad, you know? It's kind of like not really something that you want to aspire to. Um, I think we, we need to move ahead. We need to move beyond ego and not get caught in it. We need to take the recognition of owning our art and then move into unknown territory to explore what we don't know. I've said that ad infinitum, ad nauseum, I know. And I think as as artists, we need to take that responsibility to be be in relationship with the present. I know a place to go. Sunday, August 2nd at noon, the Vancouver Pride Parade starts downtown at Robson and Thurlow. Showcasing Canada's proud diversity, Vancouver's Pride Parade ran 500,000 strong last year. Join the celebration as we support the LGBT community worldwide. Parade entries are full, but find your spot to watch at vancouverpride.ca. Festival events run all week. UBC AMS Mini School seeks to provide students and the community an opportunity to learn outside the classroom. Our courses are taught by professional instructors and delivered at the best rates around, starting at $45. Check this out. We provide a diverse array of courses including, but not limited to, pole dancing, photography, guitar, swing dancing, wine tasting, and much, much more. Courses begin in October, February, and May, and typically run for four to six weeks. Check out www.ams.bc.ca slash minischool for registration information. Welcome back to the Arts Report. I'm Tracy Fuller and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. The following review was written by the Arts Report's Elizabeth Kirkland, who has been attending a number of plays in Vancouver this summer. This review is about the Firehall Arts Centre's new performance of Piaf, 
Love Conquers All, which runs until August 2nd. Since as far back as the 1970s, the life of Edith Piaf has been hot property in scripts and screenplays across theater and film. Everyone's seen La Vie en Rose, the 2007 biopic of the French singer, and everyone remembers its star, Marion Cotillard, delivering one of the most astounding cinema performances in recent years as the impossibly complex and troubled Madame Piaf. Though Love Conquers All was written in the early 1990s, the biggest challenge for any post-La Vie en Rose actress is not simply doing the singer's life and talent justice, but in some way living up to Cotillard's startlingly real portrayal of her emotional trauma. In Piaf, Love Conquers All, Montreal-born actress Naomi Emerson attempts this in a one-woman show with a never-changing set, making this possibly the bravest show around this summer. Emerson herself is a formidable talent. She capably replicates Piaf's emotional intensity through her songs, breaking down in tears during La Cordoniste and L'Hymne de la Mort. Her vocals and spoken French accents sound authentic, and she is visibly consumed with passion and grief for Piaf's lover, the champion boxer Marcel Sardin, when his plane goes missing over the Atlantic Ocean. Piaf's addictions to men and morphine are difficult work, but Emerson successfully enacts a woman completely at the disposal of her own heart, never overdoing the drug-addled state in which Piaf viewed the world in her later years. Emerson's directorial decisions are also generally spot on. The show begins with Piaf addressing the audience, betting us we have a few questions to ask the slightly drunk, unhinged mademoiselle into whose living quarters we've stumbled. The audience with Piaf format continues through the conversational style of the script and a raucous sing-along to Milord, creating an intimate, relaxed mood throughout the auditorium. The show finds its strength in such intimacy and intensity, and Emerson shows a craving for our attention and sympathy that nicely reflects Piaf's longing for attachment with the men she met. The content of the show, however, is not without some significant flaws. The script offers no new perspective or information on Piaf's existence, and it pots far too complicated a life into just 100 minutes. It's detrimental to Emerson's abilities. Elizabeth couldn't help but feel that despite her commendable efforts, she didn't empathize with Edith because there wasn't enough time or the right language allocated to adequately convey each tragic episode. The play's chronological birth-to-death structure feels pretty unimaginative compared to the disjointed flashbacks of La Vie en Rose and the over-stylized monochrome furniture that makes up Piaf's lounge and dressing room is too neat to reflect her fractured character. Elizabeth imagined Piaf mourning Marcel prostrate on a moth-eaten chaise lounge, not delicately reclining on a white wooden armchair and clutching a perfect red rose, as Emerson would have us all believe. For sheer embodiment of character, Piaf Love Conquers All is an impressive play, exhibiting some incredible Canadian talent, both in Naomi Emerson and in the pianist Yan Lee, who creates timely subtlety and drama throughout the production. In a saturated market, the play finds its niche with its personable, intimate storytelling, but as a total theatrical experience, it's not as wholly satisfying as it could be. review was written by my theater critic Elizabeth Kirkland. PF Love Conquers All will run at the Firehall Art Center until August 2nd. 
And that's it for the Arts Report today. Thanks for listening in. And as always, if you want to get in touch, you can always reach me at arts at citr.ca. Tune in next week for the second half of the Eat Dance Dialogue. I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you stay out of the sun, but in the heat as much as you can. I must mention again that today's show is being brought to you by the Olio Festival. Olio is a non-for-profit Vancouver-based cultural expose with music, comedy, design, art and film from across Canada and beyond. The four-day festival begins on August 13th with every night based in a different neighborhood. And if you visit www.oliofestival.com for the festival lineup and answers to all the questions, you can also pick up some passes which are now available. I'm Tracy Fuller, and this was the Arts Report for July 29th, 2009. From Rapid Eye Movement by Peter Yeager. I saw a white tower with many windows a long way off, across a flat plain. Bits of irradiated soot floated around the charred city, but I alone had survived the nuclear bombing. People keep watching what I do. I flew into the sky while dancing. Everyone was a unique organ functioning within the larger body that composed us. Branches grew into my eyes, ears, and ass. Stairs lead off in every direction through the black sky. I can heal anyone. Groups of tiny people danced very slowly. Seven jets flew overhead in formation, and then I found myself in the cockpit. My foot sank knee-deep into the earth. Denim snowflakes formed and reformed crystalline patterns on my jeans. I danced like a tropical creeper from the jungle. The dog seemed severe but calm. I soared on a steady wind stream flowing around a forest of very tall trees, and the trees had the sweetest, luscious fruit, colored in medium gold, large red, small green. I'm proud of my nakedness, and I'm always running toward my boyfriend. There was a huge spider web being spun by a giant spider. A guide led me through a long corridor on an alien planet. At the party, I wore this style.